This is the Fast Five Podcast, presented by Blaze Fields and Sam Sinclair. Hello and welcome to the Fast Five Podcast, hosted by Blaze Fields and Sam Sinclair. Uh, this week we are excited to announce that we have a new logo designed by the one, the only, Kara Brown. So, big thanks to her for doing that for us. But um, yeah, we got a bunch of exciting stuff coming down the pipeline, and a new logo just happens to be one of them. Uh, got a, we got a bunch of ideas coming through the pipeline. Uh, we're thinking about doing a potentially a mailbag um, for all your listener questions on sports, and uh, yeah, it should be uh, should be a pretty exciting time for the podcast. So, without th- further ado, let's get into it. All right, so the biggest story of this past week is the Bucks finally made it a series, winning 120 to 100 at home. The uh, NBA Finals now stands at two to one Suns, with the pivotal Game Four being played tonight in Milwaukee. The Bucks were getting destroyed when the series was in the Arizona desert, but Sam, they came back and won a game. Uh, what do you think changed for the Milwaukee Bucks? Well, the biggest change I saw was one that I talked about last week, and they just simply made their shots. And another thing, Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday both had good games at the same time, something we hadn't seen a lot so far in these playoffs. Middleton came away with 18 points, 6 assists, and 7 rebounds, and Holiday himself had 21 points, 9 assists, and 5 rebounds. So it was a good all-around effort from these Bucks' top options. And yet again, Giannis Antetokounmpo, dominated with a 41 point and 13 rebound performance. I read a Statcast tweet today that said with this performance he joins Shaquille O'Neal as the only two players in NBA history to record back-to-back 40 point 10 rebound games in an NBA Finals series. So I think this team is finally starting to put it together. Defensively they're not quite there yet but they made progress holding Chris Paul and Devin Booker to below average performances. But I really liked how this team ran their offense this game. They got out in transition. They were driving and kicking. They were running the pick and roll, something we hadn't seen a lot in this series. They were just doing everything well offensively. And I think just a little more effort on the defensive end, and they may even stand a chance. But they got the momentum right now, Blaze. Yeah, and honestly, I think it was just a huge change offensively from a philosophy standpoint. They were playing a lot more physical. Like... It's no secret that they're a bigger team than the Phoenix Suns, right? Yeah. But they finally looked like the bigger team. They out-rebounded them. They collected 11 more rebounds, seven of which were on the offensive glass in pivotal moments. Guys like Bobby Portis, Brooke Lopez, and of course Giannis were finally getting in the paint, banging elbows, and boxing out and getting boards. Um, They scored 14 more points in the paint. This Suns team... If you've got Giannis Antetokounmpo driving down the lane and the biggest guy they've got on the court is Frank Kaminsky, that's going to spell trouble. They got DeAndre Ayton into foul trouble way early and were able to take advantage of the fact that they've got a third-rate center out there now that Dario Saric is injured. You know, I didn't think this would be a pivotal injury for the Suns, but after seeing Frank Kaminsky try and defend the paint... I think Dario Saric might end up being the reason why the Phoenix Suns lose the finals. Now, I'm not saying the Suns are going to lose the finals. I I definitely think there's a bounce-back game uh, coming up, either in Game 4 or Game 5. But if the Bucks win, we might be looking at that Game 1 injury as as one of the main reasons why they lost. Um, 
So, speaking of Game 4, Sam, what do you expect to see tonight? I expect to see an a lot more aggressive Phoenix Suns team. They, ca- they kind of came out coasting this last game after winning the first two games somewhat easily. So, now I think they're c- going to come out and try to set the tone early. Devin Booker, I don't know what in the world happened with him last game, but he had the worst game I think I've ever seen watching him. So, I think he's going to come out with a fire in himself and go out there and try to score all that he can. Um, Otherwise, it's just going to be about trying to contain Giannis. They haven't been able to do it yet, and I don't think there's a way possible. Like you said earlier, Frank Kaminsky has literally been played off the court in this series. He's too slow and weak to guard Giannis and doesn't offer enough on the offensive floor to provide really any value to the Suns team. So I really like what you said about Dario Saric. I think he's a very underrated player in this league. But... For the Suns, it's just coming out with the effort that you had in Game 1 and Game 2 and that whole Western Conference final series. I think this team finally got complacent. They hadn't lost by 20 points, which is how much they lost by in Game 3, this whole playoffs. So it's a bit of, it starts with a bit of a wake-up call for them. So I expect them to come out, play faster, harder, and counter that physicality that the Bucks brought last game. Yeah, I also expect to see a bounce back game from the Suns, especially shooting wise. They were 9 from 31 from 3, and that is just uncharacteristic for this Phoenix Suns team. They're an amazing team shooting the ball, and we just did not see that last night. And it was kind of what the Bucks suffered from. They Their shots weren't falling. So I expect them to regress towards the mean and, you know, make it a make it a close game. But I think with the Bucks playing more aggressive offense and defense, I think I think the Bucks come away with a close one, 108 to 104. All right, that's five minutes. On to the next. All right, how could we not talk about the biggest sports story this weekend in which the McGregor hype train was derailed after a first-round beatdown by Dustin the Diamond Poirier turned into a doctor stoppage after McGregor brutally snapped his tibia, dodging a punch after the end of the first round. Sam, is this the end? of McGregor's status as an elite competitor in the UFC? And do you think this saga will reach a fourth fight? Well, Blaze, like I said at the end of our last podcast, I think this is the end of the road for McGregor. He's just looked slow and too much on the defensive his last couple fights and even in this most recent fight. And I mean, you said the injury, he sustained it himself trying to dodge a punch or kick or whatever it was. So... If your bones giving out on you is not a sign to hang it up and stop fighting, I don't know what is. I think the McGregor hype train has been dead for a while. I think if he keeps fighting, his record is going to get worse. And I think if the saga does reach a fourth fight, Poirier is going to hand it to him again. This guy is solidifying himself as one of the best UFC fighters pound for pound in the world. He's already ranked sixth on that list, but after beating you know, a big name like McGregor, one of the all-time greats, multiple times... He's really establishing himself as one of the best. Sam, I'm going to have to disagree with you here. I think the doom and gloom for McGregor is completely overblown. Uh, first of all, a broken tibia, it, it's not an ACL injury. He can recover from that and be pretty much the same fighter he was before just an absolute freak accident like that happened. I don't think I don't think breaking a tibia like that is any sign of aging per se. I think it was just a, it was a freak accident. And something that, I mean, you're not going to be able to replicate that 99 times out of 100. That's just something that has happened. Um, but furthermore, for a UFC fighter, he's he's on the younger side. 
Three of the eight current champions are actually older than him, with the light heavyweight champion, uh, Jan Blackowitz, being 38. We know he can compete at an elite level and can be a champion. I think the big question is, is he dedicated enough and can he improve his his ground game in order to compete with uh, guys like Poirier and even the current uh, lightweight champion? Um, I think that McGregor... He's just got the potential to be a champion. He was a two. He, he held two championship belts at the same time in the uh, the lightweight and featherweight divisions. I don't think that side of McGregor's gone yet, but I think that you know with the whiskey business and fighting Floyd, he got a little complacent, and I think it's definitely bit him in the rear the past two fights and even his fight against Khabib. Um, I think that if he gets back to it and he really puts his nose to the grindstone like we've seen, he can. I think he could be a champion, but we'll see. Anyway, um, all right, real quick, Sam, our MMA, not our MMA, our NBA expert, Cole Shoutis, decided to throw his hat into the MMA ring uh, by pointing out that uh, Dustin Poyer pulled a bit of an illegal move by sticking his feet through the fence during McGregor's uh, guillotine, Sam, and he, Cole said that he thinks the fight would have been a different fight had they been allowed to stand back up. Uh, do you think that if if what Cole is, is is saying is true, do you think that this could have been a different fight, or do you think McGregor still would have lost in two two or three rounds? I think the outcome stays the same regardless. As you said a couple minutes back, McGregor is not known for his ground game, so regardless of whether Poirier had his toes in the fence or not, I think if this fight goes on, Poirier... Uh, wears McGregor down on the ground because he's just not apt to fighting in those conditions consistently. He's more of an old-school fighter, I think, where he's good standing up with his arms and his legs, with his punches and his kicks, but when you get him onto the ground at the submission game, he's not the best at it. So I don't think this changes the outcome much. And in terms of what the official should have done, that's just sports. I mean, we umpire for a living. Like, bad calls happen. They don't see things. And, you know, I don't think this is a big deal in the very end because it's not what decided the fight anyway. But I'm just saying I don't think McGregor's ground skills are up to par with Poirier's. So, regardless, I think the fight ends in the same result. Yeah, and I mean, McGregor was being absolutely dominated. It, if you look back at the judges' scorecards, two out of the three judges ruled the 10-8 round, which is basically the equivalent of getting blown out in a, in a round of fighting. So I think that no matter what happens, I think McGregor would have lost this fight. But that doctor stoppage really does put things into like a, well, what could have been? Could he have had a really good second round and knocked out Dustin? I guess we'll never know. Excited for the fourth fight, though. Next topic. Now, the biggest sports story this week was the MLB All-Star Game. While the American League took home a 5-2 victory over the National League, the big story was the Swiss Army Knife himself, Shohei Otani. He became the first player in All-Star Game history to not only act as the starting pitcher, but the leadoff hitter as well. He pitched a scoreless first and went 0-2 for at the dish. So Sam, was Shohei's big day everything you hoped for and more? I mean, obviously not, because he only pitched one inning and didn't get a hit. But still, just the scale to how he's dominated the sport of baseball this year, I think, is incredible. So I think we all need to just take a second and appreciate that he not only got to be in the starting lineup, but he got to be the starting pitcher as well. That's just really, truly incredible 
and something I don't think we'll see again for a long while. And I also want to say that he also threw the game's fastest pitch with a fastball that clocked in at 100.2 miles per hour. So not only can he hit home runs, he can also overpower you from the mound too. He's got very dirty stuff. He's just impressive in whatever he does. I see a very long and successful career for Otani. Uh, whether he maintains his dominance on both sides of the baseball, I don't know. But he's definitely got the potential right now to be one of the best in the game for a very long time. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And not to mention that, that, but he also was in the home run derby literally the night before. So in a span of about 24 hours, he hit 31 home runs, six of which went over 500 feet. He pitched a scoreless frame in the All-Star game, and he batted twice in the All-Star game, which is not something that happens often. You know, a lot of All-Star guys, they hang around for three innings, but they really only get one chance at the dish. Shohei got two. And like you said, a 100-mile-per-hour fastball, I would like to point out that nobody in the past two All-Star games has thrown a pitch that fast. The last time somebody threw one over 100 was Chris Sale, and he hit 100.1 back in the 2018 All-Star game. I mean, Shohei Otani's dominance is absolutely incredible to witness. And instead of worrying about what his future is and, you know, oh, is he going to have to choose one or the other? Let's just appreciate him for what he is right now. This generation's, well, he might not be as good as Babe Ruth, but he definitely is Babe Ruth incarnate in terms of his ability to dominate from both the pitching side and the hitting side of baseball. Anyway, let's get back to the actual game. The American League took home a 5-2 victory um, thanks to a big blast by Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the, uh, the American League's MVP. So, Sam, what did you see from the uh, American League and National League squaring off? Um, the biggest thing was the highlight of the game that you just mentioned, the big 468-foot shot from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's my front runner for the AL MVP. What he's doing on the field is truly incredible. But uh, before I really go into that, I just want to say, what is up with the National League? Losing eight straight All-Star games? Like, come on, what what's going on here? That's, that's kind of sad. I mean, looking at both these rosters, I predicted the AL to win, but I at least expected the AL to, or the NL to put up a better fight than this, scoring only two runs with the big lineup they got. And with my opinion, pitching's better on the NL side anyway, so I just don't know what's going on with this National League All-Star team. Dave Roberts, I just want to say, has lost three consecutive All-Star games, so get him out of there. Just do something to get this NL team winning All-Star games, because at some point... I think that's going to end up mattering. But in terms of the game overall, it was fun to watch. There wasn't as many offensive highlights as I would have liked to have seen. But I always just enjoy seeing some of the best in the sport going out there and competing, especially in the MLB's all-star format because, you know, this game actually matters. I mean, the winner, the winning league gets home field advantage in the World Series. That's, that's a benefit that we don't see in other big sports leagues like the NFL in the NBA, where the All-Star games are touted upon as jokes and non-competitive. So, it wasn't the best All-Star game I've ever seen, but it was definitely enjoyable seeing guys like Otani, Guerrero, Tatis, all these young stars 
competing with and alongside some of these older guys that have been All-Stars for a while. So it was just a great experience. I think it's been a great week. Hopefully all the players get a good week off, good break, and then get ready for a good second half of the season. Man, Sam, bold take with the Vladdy Guerrero Jr. for AL MVP pick. I might have to debate you on that in a month or two once the uh, MVP race starts heating up. Anyways, like you said, it's just so much fun to watch these guys go at it. The best players in one of the best sports leagues uh, battling it out for World Series home field advantage. And I think this is why the MLB All-Star Game is truly the best All-Star Game because nobody cares about the Pro Bowl. Nobody watches it. The NBA All-Star Game, it's not treated seriously. You know, it it just becomes a a dunk highlight reel. Or, you know, oh, Curry hits three threes in a row because they don't play any defense. Whereas in the MLB, it's the closest to the actual product on the field. And that just is is what makes it so great. So, yeah, a successful All-Star Game in a successful five minutes. While the MLB was celebrating its finest stars, on the other side of the pond, the 2020 Euros finished up with Italy standing atop of Europe as champions. It would come down to a penalty kick shootout, and England would blow a 2-1 advantage as Marcus Rashford, Judon Sancho, and Bukayo Saka missed three straight, allowing Italy to win. Sam, what do you think was the biggest storyline in this intense final Oh, man. I think the big storyline is how intense this game wasn't. It it sucked. I mean, from all the expectations we had going into this final, we expected an exciting game, and score-wise, that expectation was met. But in terms of actual excitement from the game, it was not. England started off on the right foot with a goal in the second minute by Luke Shaw. It was a great goal, but after that, they just looked completely flat. They didn't look like they had any chance in the final third from that point on. And they were sturdy enough defensively until they finally gave up a goal in the 67th minute to Juventus' own Leonardo Benucci. But after that goal in the second minute, England just looked totally disoriented and tired and not engaged. Italy dominated possession and was moving the ball around well. They just couldn't get anything going in the final third. I think if Italy had one of the better attacks in this tournament, they would have blew them out of the water. But yet again, something we've talked about week after week, none of these teams have performed up to expectations, so we didn't see that happen. So, it I mean, I guess at the end of the game, it was exciting as a whole, but watching the full 100-plus minutes, including extra time, it was just not, was not that entertaining. I'm hoping the World Cup itself brings some more uh, entertaining matches than this, but... At least it was close, I gotta say. And yet again, I predicted the score correct. I did say, you can quote, I said Italy 1-1 to on penalties, so gotta give me some credit for that one. Yeah, good job, Samuel. Samuel's become a, kind of the ringer here when it comes to, to predictions. He's, I think he's what, like 3-0 and probably? 4-4. Four 4-4, for four. Four for four. dang, man, that's crazy. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with what you said. I... It would have been a lot more exciting if Italy had more star power in their final third. Um, You know, it's something I mentioned and was what I thought would be the downfall for Italy is the fact that they had nobody back there who could score. And it almost ended up being a 1-0 victory for England had they not gotten that equalizer goal in the second half. Um, I just don't think England made any adjustments. Southgate, as a manager really failed England, I think. He didn't make 
any good substitutions. You know, I don't think he made any substitutions until extra time, which is absolutely ridiculous considering how the game was going. He didn't change up their play style, how they defended the ball, how they tried to attack. You know, Italy, it was obvious that after that first score in the first six minutes, um, that they, they, they got back on their heels and were able to dig in and play some good defense because they figured out what England was doing. Meanwhile, England was just like, oh, we're going to run the same attack. And it just didn't work for obvious reasons. And Southgate, he did nothing, nothing. And then to top it all off, when it came down to penalty kicks, he left the last penalty kick to a 19-year-old, somebody who had never been in that situation, somebody who was not mature enough to handle the pressures of having to kick an equalizing penalty kick. I mean, just what a terrible showing for England. And honestly, they deserve it, not only from a team standpoint, but from a fan standpoint. Uh, The way English fans have acted during these Euros is absolutely disgusting. I mean, not only towards other teams, booing every national anthem, calling a nine-year-old girl um, who was featured on the European television feed, a a German fan, a slut. Um, And then after this game, they racially attacked the three African-American football players who missed the penalty kicks. I mean, yeah, they don't deserve anything. They don't deserve for it to come home. Uh, That's that's all I got to say about that, Sam. Yeah, this England team just horrible showing not just on the pitch but off it as well and I don't know if it comes down to Southgate himself or the players but how can a team with this many good names on it not perform well I just don't get it I was waiting for them this whole tournament to break out and they just never did I have no idea what the problem was they did not look good defensively or offensively they just looked horrible and I gotta say, I hope I see a lot more things from this team in the World Cup and beyond because they have great players. They're a great country with a storied history. They just did not do well at all this year. I don't know what went wrong, but hopefully they can get it fixed in the future. All right, and for our final five-minute topic, uh, let's talk about Team USA. Over the past week, the usually stoic dream team has turned into a thing of nightmares for U.S. fans, as Team USA has dropped two of their three pre-Olympic exhibition games to teams like Nigeria and Australia. So, Sam, with the Olympics just mere weeks away, is it time to sound the panic button for Team USA? No, not at all. There's a number of factors outside of these players' control that's affecting their play right now, and the biggest one being this condensed... NBA season uh, you know they had the bubble last season but then shortly after that I think it was two or three months they had that off season that shortened off season and then they was back to playing a 72 game season so not a lot of rush for these players and a lot of players on this team USA right now are coming off playoff runs of their own so I mean there's been hardly any rest you can tell there's signs of fatigue with these players and one of the big things I want to point out is that these other countries that have beaten team USA it's not necessarily because they have the talent advantage, it's the chemistry advantage. In a lot of these smaller countries that the U.S. plays in Olympic basketball, these Olympic teams are usually the same players year after year. Whereas in the NBA, we're, we're known to be more talented basketball players here. The Olympic team is usually comprised of the best players in the NBA at the time of the Olympics. 
But in these smaller countries, it's usually the same players selected year after year. So you look at a lot of the teams still in, that are going to be in the Olympics this year, like Australia, um, Argentina, their rosters look very similar to when they did, you know, like 10, 15 years ago. So I just think for Team USA, this chemistry needs to develop and just don't let it get to your head. I mean, these games don't even matter after all. It's just scrimmages. So they got time to iron out all these uh, problems defensively. And I mean, it's definitely not time to sound the panic button. It's just way too early. And the factors that have been causing them to lose are out of their control. I still think they're the overwhelming front runners for this tournament. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think another thing is it's it's just a different play style in terms of international basketball. And, I mean, it's a play style that I think would benefit the NBA if they took to it. But, like, these superstar calls that these guys are used to getting, they're not getting them anymore. Yeah. These international refs, they don't care what your name is or who you are. They're not going to give you these touch fouls, these, you know, jumping into the shooter, trying to draw the foul kind of deals. That that's not going to fly in international basketball, you know. This is these are guys coming from Euroleague, uh, coming from China ball, you know. They don't call those over there, and so you know these guys who are so used to not playing with any physicality are getting ran over by Nigeria and Australia, who have their own basketball leagues, who have their own sets of rules that are more accustomed to international play. And I think it's just going to be a tough adjustment period for the U.S. But I think all in all, I think once they get used to having to play better defense, having to not draw the foul but finish through the contact, I think uh, I think they'll be a lot better for it. And I think, really, if the NBA makes it to where scoring on offense and drawing these fouls like Trey Young and Luka Doncic have been doing the past few years, and they eliminate that i think it's going to make for a much better and enjoyable basketball product um so i think this might be a wake-up call for the nba to kind of change their ways and let the players play let them be tough let them bang in the paint let them do what it takes you know so yeah but all in all i i don't think it's time to sound the panic alarm yet for team usa you know they've got a lot more star power and i think at the end of the day talent's gonna win out um, so Sam, do you have any thoughts on, uh, USA's physicality? I just want to say, I think it's really ironic that the U.S. is always considered the most talented country on the basketball court, but we're always considered the least physical. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous watching NBA games now where there's hardly any contact and fouls will be called. I think what you said is a really good point. It should serve as a wake-up call to the NBA to better prepare them for international basketball, of course, but just to make basketball more entertaining. Flopping is an element that I think is killing this sport. It's making players look like fools, and it's making fans mad, and it's really not benefiting anybody except for the players drawing the fouls that really shouldn't even be fouls. So I think physicality is something that needs to be implemented and rewarded more in the NBA, and I think that's why we see it in the Olympic in the Olympics, it's because teams that are willing to grit and grind and be physical with other countries, that, that they win that way. I mean, it truly comes down to who wants it more when physicality is a part of this sport. And I just think it's something you have to implement in the NBA to make games more entertaining. It makes players work harder, and it'll just 
ease a lot of the tensions that players have towards players known to flop or officials or just anybody associated with that kind of thing. All right, should be an exciting Olympic season for Team USA. All right, and before we finish off this episode of Fast Five, uh, we're going to introduce our newest segment called Quick Hitters, where we're going to take a, uh, a, a news story that we didn't feel deserved five minutes and break it down in about a minute or a minute and a half. Um, and let's get to uh, another big news story involving the MLB All-Star Game. Uh, Stephen A. Smith took the first take on Tuesday, saying that Shohei Otani could not be the face of Major League Baseball because he couldn't speak any English. Uh, Sam, uh, what do you think about that? I don't even know how this man is employed. He's literally known for saying things that are just so idiotic and wrong that people watch him just to get a good laugh. This guy does not know what he's talking about in this case, or really any case. I've really never been a Stephen A. Smith fan. And I just want to say, this doesn't make any sense pertaining to Otani, because baseball is a sport. It's a very diverse sport. People from all over the world play the sport and are in the MLB. You know, we have some of the biggest faces in baseball right now, or Otani from Japan, Fernando Tatis from the Dominican Republic. All these countries in South America bring a ton of great talent to the MLB. So why he would even say this, I have no idea. And this needs to be taken care of. I mean, this is literally racist. I consider this racist. I consider it outrageous. I consider this stupid. There's not any good word I can apply to this situation because none of it makes sense. Yeah, I completely agree. And for Stephen A. Smith, somebody who is so outspoken on issues of race um, in terms of the Black Lives Matter movement and all that stuff, all, that is, all that's fine. All that's great. But you can't be against racism on one side of the spectrum and then you yourself be racist towards uh, a player of Japanese descent. Like, what does it matter if you can't speak English or have an interpreter? You know, one of the biggest worldwide sports is soccer, where people will go from Italy and play in France. They'll go from Japan and play in Germany. You know, they'll go from Portugal and play in Spain, like the one of the greatest players of all time, Cristiano Ronaldo. Do you think that Ronaldo has to worry about him being the face of soccer in spite of the fact that he's from Portugal and speaks Portuguese? No, of course not. And for Stephen A. Smith, someone who admitted to not even watching an Angels game this year, to go out and say that somebody can't succeed in America because they aren't used to our culture is absolutely ridiculous, and it, it's completely ignorant. Um... So yeah, that's our that's our quick hitter topic. Um, be sure to check back on either Sunday or Monday as we're going to break down Game 4 of the NBA Finals here on the Fast 5 Podcast. Uh, be sure to give us a follow on Instagram at Fast5Pod and uh, check out our episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, and hopefully wherever, pod, wherever you listen to your podcast. Going to try to get distribution issues figured out soon. Again, want to thank Cole Shadis for providing the equipment, Kara Brown for creating our logo, and for you guys for listening. Thanks, and have a good rest of your day.